Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Lord, you open our hearts, open our minds, Lord, open our understanding as you did to your your own, Lord, and in the end of Luke, Lord, we pray that you would do the same for us now in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Matthew chapter five, verse one. Seeing the multitude, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Now, what we've done here so far, we've been following this Sermon on the Mount in a particular way, and we started out by seeing the continuum of, of how the, when the Lord started his public ministry, which is really way back in chapter four, verse 17, where it says there that from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So his ministry started by preaching one word, which was repent. And that's the message, that's a very, very significant message because basically what he was saying and what John the Baptist said before him was that, by saying the word repent, he was saying, you're going the wrong way, and you need to do an about face. Now, the Lord Jesus was, was as we know, was God. He was come to man in the flesh. He's got God's message, and God's message to the world is repent. You're going the wrong way. It's like saying you're wrong. And so immediately you can imagine that when he says something like that, you're wrong, how that polarizes the people, and they've got to get into one of two response groups. Either one response group is going to, to not take it, not receive it, not, not receive that message, and, and just say, oh, no, no, no. I thought that when God looked at me, he would say, good job. I, that's what I thought. I, that group thought that God would say to him, you're a good person because you're, and you're gonna go to heaven. You can expect that. You're gonna go to heaven because you're such a good person. And that was the group that the Lord spoke about in Matthew chapter seven, verse 13. In Matthew seven thirteen, when he said, enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads to life, and few there be that find it. So what he was really doing there, just like the word repent would polarize into two groups, he's now described two gates and two roads. And one of the gate was narrow, and one of the gates was wide. 
And the Lord starts off this explanation by urging the people, go into the narrow gate. And before describing the narrow gate, he describes, before, before this, he describes the other gate, the wide gate and the wide road, and he describes it in such a way that it's a warning. He's warning them. So the Lord did not describe the people as entering into the wide gate. He just described them as, the, as they were already on it, or they were already on the right, wide road. He said, and he just said that the people who are on this wide road, this big wide road, this broad way as he calls it, he says that there are many of them. There are many people there and they're all heading for the destruction. And we, we know that's hell he's speaking about. He said they're all heading for destruction. And then he describes how the narrow gate opened up to a narrow road which was leading to life, it was leading to heaven. And then he said, there's few on those. There's not very many on there, there's few. And so, you know, he, he says something like that. We read something like that. And the all-important question is, what is that broad road that leads to hell and that many people are on it? And then the more important question is, what's that narrow gate that leads to heaven? So these are the all-important questions that must be answered because whether a person goes to heaven or whether a person goes to hell depends on the answers to the, to the questions of, first, what is that broad, wide road that leads to hell? And what is that narrow road that puts a person on the way to heaven? And if you ask the question today, if you ask that question of people and you say, well, what does a person look like who's going to heaven? I mean, many would give really one of two answers. They would, the common answers are, well, the person, what, he looks, what the person looks like who's on the way to heaven is he looks like a good person with good works in his life. Or the other answer would be, well, he looks religious. He looks religious. He's going to church. He's doing religious things. He's reading his Bible and memorizing the Bible. And those are the common answers that people would give to the question, how do you get to heaven? Either it's by good works or it's by being re religious. And so these two questions you know, is that right? Will doing good works get a person to heaven? Will just being religious get a person to church? Yeah, it gets them to church for sure. But will it get them to heaven? And so after the Lord has urged the people to make sure you go into the narrow gate that goes to heaven and get off the broad road that goes to hell, then the Lord says right after that in Matthew 7, 21, Matthew 7, 21, he, he goes on to explain further and he says, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. So that raises the question, what's the will of his Father in heaven? And many, he goes on to say in verse 22, Matthew 7, 22, he goes on to say, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? He wants to hear better. There he is. <laughs> That's good. I wish you all would come up and be like him. <laughs> anyway, have we not prophesied in thy name? And then he says, they're gonna say, and in thy name have cast out devils. And then they're gonna say, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. So when the Lord said that and described those people and what they were saying, he was really answering these two questions that are on the table right now. The question, the first question is, 
It's on the table that he answered. Will doing good works get me into heaven? And the second question that's on the table is, will being religious get me into heaven? Well, because he described these people who were being cast into hell, and they were crying, we've done many wonderful works. Can't you just picture that? They're being cast into hell, and as they're, be, as, they're, as they're flying through the air, they're saying, we've done many wonderful works. And they're crying that out. And, you know, it, well, and so that answers the question, will doing good works get me into heaven? And the answer is no, from his description here. And then he also described these people being cast into hell, and they're crying, you know, we preached in your name. We did the many wonderful works in your name. So when they said that, they said, we did this in the name of Jesus. And they're saying that they're religious people. So they're being cast into hell. They're crying out, we're religious because we did everything in the name of Jesus. And so that answers the second question. Will being religious get me into heaven? The answer is no. So if doing good works and being religious doesn't get a person into heaven, what does? What does? So then the Lord goes on. He doesn't leave people hanging. He goes on and he says in in Matthew 7, 24, verse 24, Matthew 7, 24, he says, therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man that built his house upon a rock. And, and then he describes uh, this house that's built on a rock and a storm comes and, and the house stands firm because it's on the rock. And he makes it very clear that, that there's another group that builds his house on the sand and he says that the storm came also and the, and the house fell. And he said, it all depends on if you do what I said. Must not have liked something I said. I don't know. Yeah, it's going back. <laughs> but do what I said. And he talked about doing the will of the Father. And so you say, well, what did he say? Because this is what it's all hinging on, whether or not a person goes to heaven or not. And that's where we come back to his start of his ministry. He said, repent. He said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is in hand in Matthew 4, 17. Matthew 4, 17. And then we get back to the, where he said, the will of, what is the will of my father? What's the will of God the Father? And that's where we look at Acts 17.30. Acts 17.30, where we get God's commandment for every man on earth, where it says in Acts 17.30, the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. It's Easter today. He raised him from the dead. So the message, God the Father, the command from God the Father is for everybody in the world, repent, which means realize you're wrong. Receive the message, you are going the wrong way. You are wrong. And see yourself as a sinner. And so he said, what he was saying here is that people who trust in their good works, in their religion, and in their religion, they're the ones in Matthew 7.23 that he's gonna profess unto, Matthew 7.23. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. So in other words, those who who are trusting in their good works, trusting in their religion, he says, I never knew you. Now, we can imagine they said, you never knew us? We knew you. You know, we can imagine them saying, but I knew you. I knew all about you. I memorized Bible verses about you. I knew all about you. 
Then the Lord would say, yes, but you never knew me as your savior from your sins. You didn't see yourself as going wrong. You didn't see yourself as a sinner that needed to repent. You saw yourself as a good person who did good works, a religious person. You never saw yourself as that, that type of sinner that could be described as dirty and rotten. You never saw yourself like that, that as a dirty, rotten sinner that I came to save. So when the Lord said, I never knew you, he meant, I never knew you as a person that I saved from your dirty, rotten sinfulness. I never knew you as a person who repented of your sins. And this, this is how it makes clear in Matthew 7, 23, when he speaks about, he says to them, I never knew you. And that's a tragedy. That's tragedy because that's a, that's a tragedy for many people who go to church. You know, along, you know, we're in a small church here. And a long time ago in this small church, there was a person that I, I, I was interviewing on tape for his testimony. And, and he'd come here a long time. And he was an older person, and he had been in World War II. And so during the, the testimony, he was telling me a lot of very interesting stories about the war, the Second World War. And, I, and it was very interesting, and, and I was listening. But then I realized that, well, he's never, you know, he's never really told me how he was saved. And so I asked him, I said, well, tell me how you were saved. Tell me how you knew you were a sinner and that you were saved from your sins. And I'll never forget it to this day. He, he looked at me and he said, sinner? He said, I'm no sinner. Sinner? He said, don't talk to me about sin. I'm not a sinner. <laughs> I was shocked <laughs> in our church, in this little small church. That tragedy happens to people in the church in general because the Lord's message is repent of your sins. Come to him to be saved from your sins. So, with that backdrop, that's how we move into the Sermon on the Mount. That's how we interpret these Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. These Beatitudes start, that, that start off his Sermon on the Mount here are a continuation of his preaching that started in the previous chapter in, Mark, in Matthew 4.17, Matthew 4.17, where we've seen from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, in other words, realize you're wrong, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, I mean, many people look at the Sermon on the Mount and they say, oh, well, that's a description of how you'd be righteous and, and what you're supposed to be like, but we're looking at it differently now because we're looking at it as a continuation of what he started his preaching in Matthew 4.17 when he said, repent. And so, the verses in verses three through six, three through, through six, Matthew Five, three through six, described a person before he is saved. Before he is saved, that person feels so poor in spirit that he realizes he can't do any good works to get into heaven. And he knows in verse three, in Matthew 5, verse three, he's poor in spirit. He feels so poor. He feels like he has nothing to hold up to God and to say how good he is or that he's religious. He's poor in spirit. Before he is saved, all his sins have broken his heart. He's under such a conviction of his, of his sins, he's sad. And so in verse four, he's described as a person who, in the group of people, they that mourn, mourn. He's filled with remorse, he's mourning over his sin. He's filled with this question, why did I do that? Why did I do that? Before he's saved, 
He's so humbled and crushed by his sins, he can't even lift his head up. He can't even lift his head up. He, he knows he deserves judgment to be cast into hell. He's under such a conviction that he's driven to a state that's described in verse five is he's meek. He's so meek. He's so meek that he feels he's on death row and he's, he has no appeals. He can't, there's no more appeals. He's just waiting there on death row for his name to be called so he can take that last walk to the death chamber. That's the meekness he's under. So before he's saved, he, he feels so empty inside, so hungry, so thirsty deep in his soul for what he doesn't have. And he's joined the ranks of verse six where he's among those that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Before he's saved, this is what his sins have done to him. His sins have reduced him to a state of poverty in spirit, to a state of mourning. He's crushed into a state of meekness and he now feels this howling void deep down, this kind of gnawing hunger in his soul. He feels so bone dry, thirsty in his core because he's hungry and he's thirsty for righteousness that is so far from him. And in verse six, he's hungering, thirsty after righteousness. This is the description of the person before he's saved. This description of poverty and mourning and, and being crushed and, and, and feeling so horribly hungry and thirsty in his soul. It's a very terrible state. And if that's all I said this morning, it's very depressing. It's a state of despair. But fortunately, it's only half of the verses. It's only half the situation of the sinner because, who's not saved because there's another half of the verse. There's another half of the description. And it's actually, in verse three, is blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because they're about to receive the kingdom of heaven. Heaven is gonna be theirs. And the sinner that feels that way is actually blessed he, and he's, he's blessed are they that mourn. Why? Because it's not very far around the corner that he's gonna be comforted. And blessed, in verse five, blessed are the meek, blessed are the crushed. Why? Because they're soon, soon gonna be the inheritors of the earth. And the sinner that feels that way is actually blessed. And then you move on to verse six. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst. Why? Because it, it won't be very long that they're gonna be filled. I mean, this is really something. I mean, heaven is gonna become theirs, and they're gonna get comforted, and they're gonna inherit the earth, and they're gonna be filled. That all sounds like good news. That all sounds like the word gospel, good news. Good news. That all sounds like gospel good news, and that's what the gospel is. The gospel is a wonderful news, because what these verses here verses three through six, are really saying is that the good news is that there's, there's going to be this wonderful exchange. The gospel, good news, is that there's gonna be in verse three where he's saying, bring your poverty to the Lord and he'll take your poverty and he'll give you heaven. He exchanges our poverty for heaven. That's great news. And in verse four, he's saying, Bring your sad state, bring your sad mourning. And he takes your mourning, your sad mourning, and he gives you his comfort. He exchanges our mourning for his comfort. That's great news. And in verse five, you bring your crushed spirit, you bring your meekness, 
And he takes your meekness and he, and he gives you the earth. That's great. And then he says in verse six, go ahead, bring your hunger and your thirst for righteousness. And he takes your thirst and your hunger for righteousness and he fills you, fills you with his righteousness. As it says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, Christ is made unto us righteousness. So this is all great news. This is the gospel style great news. And this is what the gospel does. It takes the, the downcast and it puts, the gospel puts the hand under the chin of the sinner and lifts him up and saves him from his sin and gives him so much more than he deserved. And this scene of the gospel doing this, of the Lord doing this, this good news, is the scene of the prodigal and the father of the prodigal son. The father of the prodigal son, yeah. Because the father of the prodigal. Anyway, it says it in Luke 15, 21. Luke 15, 21. Just think about this. We're looking at the Sermon on the Mount and, and this great exchange that takes place. You know, and think about this as I read this Luke 15, 21 account. The son said unto him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. It's pretty much the first description, or the first half of the descriptions in verses three through six. But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe, put it on him, put a ring in his hand, shoes on his feet, bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and found and they began to be merry. So this is what verses three through six in Matthew five are all about. The first part of each verse in verses three through six is us coming to God with nothing. We're the prodigal that come and say, we're not worthy, we're terrible. We've been in our sins and it's terrible. But the second part of each verse in verses three through six is God saying, in essence, he's saying, yeah, I know, but put the best robe on him and bring the nicest ring, the finest ring, and put on his finger and bring the choicest shoes to put on his, his feet and kill the fatted calf. We're gonna have a party because he was lost and now he's found. So this is what's happening in verses three through six. This is pre-salvation. But after verse six, the sinner is saved at this point. He's saved. So when we come to verse seven, Matthew five, verse seven, the sinner is saved. Now he's been translated out of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. He's now a child of God. He's saved. And so now he's no longer in this group of the lost and the condemned. He's transitioned. He's transitioned, just like it's described in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, goes together, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So what he's saying is that this person that we're looking at here, anyways, in, in, in Matthew 5, he used to be in the group of the fornicators, the idolaters, the adulterers, the effeminate, and the abusers themselves with mankind, the thieves, the covetous, the drunkards. He, he used to be in that. And he used to be in that group 
and look at the rest of the world, and his response was, well, they're just like me. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org and sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestorationministries.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California, Santee, California, 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org, tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. What are you doing Sunday nights? Join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for the Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. 